Hi, this is James Joke, and most webcomic reviews and interviews. Today we're sitting with Russell Nolte, USA best-selling author. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. That's when, That's I, when go? I go? That's when you go. Hi, how are you? I'm Russell Nolte, USA Today best-selling author, creator of uh, Ichabod Jones' Monster Hunter, Katrina Hates the Dead, publisher at Wannabe Press, host of the Complete Creative Podcast, and uh, editor with my friend uh, Kristen Simon of the Cthulhu is Hard to Spell anthology series. Cool. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm excited. We have this big launch uh, for the Cthulhu book coming up, and uh, I am amped. I'm excited. I think it's our best It's our best anthology we've ever done, and uh, I, cannot, uh, I cannot wait until it actually goes live so I can share it with everybody. That's correct. How, many, how successful have the other campaigns been? Well, the first Cthulhu book did $39,246. Uh, in total, I've raised $140,000 on Kickstarter across those 10 projects. And I've had two other projects go more than $25,000. Uh, and then another project hit 16 and another project hit almost 10. So, uh, I'm pretty successful on the platform. Between that and conventions, that's how I make my living. Okay. Uh, let's go with conventions first. Uh, when you go to a convention, how do you prepare for it? Oh, for the most part, I have a process now. What's nice about having done this for uh, conventions for five years and overall doing this for uh, 10, 15 years, depending on how you judge starting your career, uh, but five years full-time is... At this point, I have a, I, I know exactly what kind of books to bring, what books to bring, and what the process is going to be. So it's just I spend more time narrowing the uh, the uh, the conventions that I'm doing now than anything. Uh, so I want to pick a show that has at least fifty thousand people scheduled to attend, unless it's in Los Angeles or I'm being a, I'm being guested, and uh, then. Uh, I put together the books. I usually ship about six to eight boxes of books to a show uh, if it's outside of the area that I'm um, that I'm uh, that I'm driving to, and you know, book plane fare, book uh, book hotel rooms, yada yada yada, other stuff, and then uh, I show up a day early, set up everything, try to get a good night's sleep, and then uh, I'm ready to rock and roll when it's uh, when the show starts. Uh, what kind of convention supplies do you bring? I mean, obviously, we're talking the books and the uh, posters and all that relative to that, but anything added, like extra clothes, food, supplies, that sort of thing? Uh, I make sure to bring a lot of bars. Uh, I have Graves' disease, and I suffer from migraines, and uh, so I make sure to have a bunch of medication. I make sure to have medicated lip balm, uh, a lot of water. So what if I'm here, uh, if I'm in uh, L.A., I... I go to the store and pick up some some jugs of water. But even when I'm somewhere else, I'll I'll go to a CVS or Walgreens or something. I'm away from the airport and pick up two jugs of water. That's really the most important thing, uh, just to stay hydrated and make sure uh, your lips get chapped. So I'd like to get them the medicated the medicated uh, lip balm, and uh, then I also get a bag of Halls uh, the the cough drops because the the um, menthol in them helps uh helps your throat not uh not get all scratchy 
That's cool. Well, yeah, we tended to worry more. We actually did do some convention prep on the podcast here and there, so it was sort of interesting to see how, many, how different people prepare for, the, for their conventions. Yeah, and I usually stay close to the convention, so I don't, uh, I like, I don't bring extra, I mean, I bring extra clothes in my bag, but I don't bring them to the convention. Uh, the nice thing, what I really like about conventions is, uh, I am an extrovert, but having, uh, a, a, a table between me and the people at the convention is, uh, is something that really helps you sort of be able to recover and, uh, and not get so sweaty like you do when you're walking through, uh, thousands of people. Right. Yeah, at that point, you don't have to worry about the extra body heat. Yeah, you have, I mean, it's still not, it's still pretty jam-packed behind the tables, but uh, it's a lot less jam-packed than being in front of them. Uh, I remember going, doing conventions in front of the, and just walking around, and I'd be walking 10 miles a day, and it was quite a bit more exhausting than being just behind the table and having to stand and talk to people all day, which is its own level of exhausting, but not quite as much as running back and forth throughout the convention hall all day. And so you mentioned you to the little crowd behind the table. Who's usually with you? Uh, so a lot of shows I do with myself or I do with uh, a guest artist or creator from my company who's worked with me. So uh, when I go to a city, I like to bring one, uh, somebody with me because I uh, often don't know the city that well. And when I'm doing a big show, it's hard to get everything done. So I usually pick somebody, an author or or a fan or friend or somebody to be behind the table with me to help me with all of the you know, uh, um, uh, selling and uh, and exchanging money and um, and uh, then giving me a break so I can go to panels or, uh, or or go to the bathroom or go get food or something. So it's usually me. Sometimes it's with someone who I'm sharing the table with, who also is a creator, and we're splitting the table or something. But usually at this point, it's uh, it's somebody who I'm who I'm who I'm bringing in who's local to help me run the booth. Cool. So it's usually so you. How big is your company in terms of just you and the creators, or do you have interns or anything like that? You know, I haven't found a reason to bring in interns. Unfortunately, our stuff is pretty seasonal. It's it's project by project basis, and a lot of it is my writing. Uh, so aside from doing conventions, there's I, I feel like most of the time a intern would just be sitting watching me write and that sounds creepy i was just thinking about how i would bring in interns to my company a couple of years ago uh, a couple of years ago a couple of days ago um but really when we get a big book there's a lot of shipping to go on and uh when i'm like does and in, in certain times of the year we're we're, we're quite busy but usually I've designed my life so that most of it uh, is stuff I can do myself, except for the marketing. I am considering bringing on somebody for marketing to help with the marketing of the company, uh, depending on how this launch goes. So most of it is distributed workforce. So I hire contractors and people all around the country to uh, to do the art and to write the, and, and, to, and to write the stories for the anthologies. I do most of the writing of the novels and the graphic novels myself. Then I hire people to to write, to uh, to uh, do the art and uh, and edit. I hire editors and proofreaders and all of those kinds of people. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious because I know some places do have a, a year-round staff to deal with things and others don't. So I was just curious about your hiring. 
Yeah, I would have one if I did more than the two books that I do a year. So my I only do I don't have a full line publishing company. I publish basically one graphic novel or trade and one anthology a year. So because of that, like I don't have an office. Most of it's done out of my house. And uh, then uh, I bring them to shows and sell them. So uh, there's not been a reason to bring in year year round staff as of yet. So when you do the printing process, you actually send it out to an actual printer. They send the book back, and then you basically send it out from there? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it depends on the book. Um, a lot of our books, uh, a lot of our novels, we do print on demand. So we'll do it through Ingram Spark or uh, CreateSpace or Kindle Direct Publishing or, or Kablam sometimes, very rarely, or, uh, or, or another, like RA Comics Direct or uh, our Comic Wellspring. But when it comes to comics, unless we're doing a, a, a short run, like 50 or 100 for a specific show, yeah, we're going to China or Korea or Thailand or big or or or, a, a, or an offset printer in um in uh in the U.S. or Canada to do a thousand, two thousand unit runs, and that's mostly because we print in hardcover, and hardcover uh is just it's not economical unless you're printing a couple thousand units of your book. Um, do you do any of the places you go to do hardcover? I mean, I know CreateSpace and KDP don't, but about uh, Ingram Spark. Ingram does a uh, short run. I mean, some of the printers will do a short run of uh, of, of hardcover, but it's just prohibitively expensive. Um, if you want to get a good price on hardcover, you need to probably not go in and uh, not use a U.S. based company and uh, print in a thousand to probably two thousand two thousand to three thousand units is probably the minimum to get a good a good price on hardcover and if you can you want to get you want to print multiple books at the same time so whenever i print hardcover i try to print uh 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 at least two books at once so i'll print the volume one and volume two of the cthulhu book or i'll print a couple of our graphic novels at the same time just to get prices down okay uh first off just because i'm a nice guy uh, you might want to check out lulu they also do hardcover as well. Yeah, I, I've, I've, my recommendation is to not if you're if you're if you're not going to print at a couple of thousand units, it's not worth it to do hardcover because the pricing is going to be at least fifteen dollars. But I have looked at Lulu and uh, and Lulu does have very good uh, quality for their art books. Uh, probably the best if you're going to do hard a uh, 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 color. Uh, and you want to do a uh, nice quality uh, hardcover and you want to only print like 10 of them, then um, then then Lulu is probably your best option. Yeah, I mean, I was also looking at the little detail, little, basically looking at them also as a print on demand situation. But, yeah. So, sure. sure. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just sort of weird that you just don't find a lot of places doing hardcover online. Yeah, uh, um, and a lot of them, like Ingram Spark, for instance, has has a problem with color, uh, color comics. So it's hard to to get them to print uh, color without uh, falling outside of their specs. That's why when it comes to the comics, most everything that we do is um, is either digital or uh, it's offset printed. Just because, what's the difference between a digital printing and offset? Uh, so with a digital printer, it's very similar to printing uh, 
like from your home printer. But with an offset printer, it's a different, it's an entirely different process. So uh, they're they're using different printers and they're printing large numbers, which means that the 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 more you the more you print, the cheaper the book is. So with digital printing, it doesn't matter if you order a hundred or a thousand copies. This it's the same process, uh, it's the same cost. But with offset printing, the first 500 are insanely expensive. So you might have $5,000 in setup cost, but then each additional unit after 50, after 500 is a dollar, 50 cents to a dollar, uh, sometimes even less or sometimes a little bit more depending on how, how big the book is. But, uh, so if you're printing 10,000 units, you might be paying a dollar as opposed to $15 if you did it, uh, um, uh, a digital for that amount. So if you're going to be printing for the long haul, you want to be you want to be printing an offset because it's going to be the uh, it's going to be a much cheaper price. For instance, uh, a book for us hardcover might cost between three to five dollars um, if we're doing a three thousand unit run or two thousand unit run. But if we did it digitally, it would cost. $15 for the same book. So it's just, yes, I have to have a lot more inventory, but um, because I'm planning to do shows for the next three to five years at least and and sell them around the country during that time and doing more Kickstarters in that time, it makes sense for me to, uh, to get a lot bigger runs so that I can get much more volume for uh, roughly the same cost. It seems like... Usually the the rule of thumb is if you're going to print 300 uh, or more, it's cheaper to do offset than it is to do digital printing. Um, uh, and you get, or at the very least, 300 units digital printed is the same as a thousand units offset printed, and then you have 700 units of additional inventory. Unfortunately, most people don't have uh, the capital to be able to print at that number. And it was very hard for me at first. That's why we started using Kickstarter uh, 2014. Okay. And, and, yeah, I'm just looking at the amount of inventory you'd have to keep on hand. And we have a lot of inventory. We've got three or four additional pallets in my garage, I think four pallets at this point, plus assuming this next Kickstarter does well, uh, it'll be another three pallets. We'll have six pallets or so in my garage. It's a lot of inventory. Dang, that's sort of impressive. Yeah, but what's nice about it is um, with the way that we run our business, uh, all of the books in my garage because of the Kickstarters are f- paid for. So I, uh, all of that additional inventory is basically profit, uh, which means that when I go to a show, it allows me to uh, not have to buy a hundred copies every time I go to a show, and then have to make that up just to break even. Okay, and when you start pricing, pricing your uh, books for Kickstarter, what basically what's the basic formula for that? Because I know you've got to allow for not just the ones you plan to sell, but you've also, like you point out, you also need an extra inventory as well. Well, when I started, it was a lot different than now. Now I I, I decide how big the run's going to be. Based on uh, and and then I, I I my price my Kickstarter with how what it would cost to get everything through so how much it would cost to get all of the books uh, printed and shipped to me how much it would cost me to then ship those books to the backers how much the editors and all the production people would cost and uh, 
and ever and, and how much all the extras so for doing pins or prints or whatever it is how much all of that would cost and that becomes the price so for this last one it caught uh, for this new one that we're doing it's thirty thousand six hundred and sixty six dollars just to get the book through production to backers and then after that i'll have about two thousand to fifteen hundred to two thousand books hopefully that will be uh that will be profit that i will then take to shows around the country uh so but when I started, when I did my first book, all I wanted was enough to uh, to I just wanted to pay the print run. So I think that's a good at the beginning. Maybe you just try to pay off the print run and then make sure to print enough that if you if you sell all the books, you'll break even on the production cost as well. That seems to be a, a pretty good rule of thumb for most people. Uh, but I know a lot of people who they'll print that they'll try and do a Kickstarter for, let's say, a thousand dollars. And then they'll only print a 100 copies of the book because they're trying to print very few copies of, let's say, issue one. But they want to make sure they pay off the production cost, too. I just uh, because I, I'm planning on doing this for the next 40 years, I, 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 I tend to think more long term than most creators uh, that I know do. So summing up, so you're basically looking at more of the wholesale price and banking off of that rather than the actual profit, the book, the total retail price of the book. Yeah, well, it's not even the uh, the wholesale price. It's just the price that my printer charges me to 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 make the book. So wholesale price is how much you sell the wholesalers for. It's usually fifty percent of retail price, and then retail prices retail price that's the price that you see on the box so for our hardcovers we price them at 30 uh, between 30 and uh 40 dollars um the the then the the, the soft covers usually price at 20 dollars and then uh single issues we normally don't do single issues but the 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 uh, the ebooks are somewhere between five and ten dollars, but whatever. It, uh, so I, I I very good at sourcing. So I have a printer uh, printer in China that I use a lot, and uh, they give me a price to get all the books shipped to my to my garage, and then that is the price that I put into the Kickstarter, and then it will cost somewhere between. It, last one cost about six thousand dollars, so that's what we use to judge. This one is cost $6,000 to then take the book from my garage and ship it out to all of the backers. And then it costs some, it costs uh, an amount of, you know, then I hired an editor and over 70 creators to, 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 plus a cover artist to be on this book. So I have to pay them. And then I have to pay Kickstarter. And all of those little pieces are what go into my budget. But I've been doing this a long time and I've had good success. I don't necessarily think that a person who's doing their first Kickstarter should do that, especially if they haven't built an audience yet. And, of course, that's cool. I mean, basically, when I said wholesale, I wasn't necessarily looking at two wholesales. I was looking at basically more your more your personal cost rather than worrying about the cost of the, when you actually sell the book. So wherever that's worth. Yeah, you have to you you have to decide how much you need to sell the book for in order to uh, to be able to make the money you need too. So for us, 
thirty dollars because we have a pretty small market. The the thirty dollars becomes the price that we really good price for us, and it became how do I get a book that I could that that someone will pay thirty dollars for. Uh, so it meant doing hardcover. It meant doing, uh, you know, nice art, 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 uh, print quality paper and, uh, just making it feel really nice so that someone would think that $30 is valuable. So it's not just about deciding what the retail price is. It's deciding what the retail price is, but also deciding, uh, figuring out how to get someone to pay that amount for it. Okay. I mean, you have it. Obviously, you have a little bit of success with this. How do you build a successful campaign? So the first thing that you need to do is make sure that it's an experience. So people are coming to the nice thing about Kickstarter is that is that people are um, the people are there to support independent creators. So um, your job is to make them want to support you. And part of that is making it feel like the books are, 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 are big and beautiful and they're going to be amazing and that you're going to deliver on them. But also to make it feel like an experience. Most people consider, uh, most people do two things wrong. The first thing is they don't have their why, which is why should someone back me? Why is this important? Why am I uniquely qualified to make this book? Uh, and why should you part with your money? Uh, they don't answer any of those questions. They answer the what, like, what is this book? This is the book. This is the synopsis. Here are some pages. And then that's it. Um, and while that works for a lot of people, for, for some people, especially bigger name creators, uh, that uh, it, it, it doesn't really work for the majority of people because they want to be invested in you and they want to know why this book is important, why they should why you're on Kickstarter and why they should care. And the second thing they do is they they start acting like a, a charity drive for for like PBS or something when uh, you're supposed to make people feel good about backing you. They're supposed to make, make it feel like like this is an like a convention. You know, you're supposed to make it feel like they're giving like like it, it's really amazing to be part of this experience. And they're not it's not going to be a, a trudge throughout the campaign. They're going to like get a lot out of it, and you're going to give them a bunch of cool stuff, and you're going to let them in on the process, and you're going to 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 make them feel good. Uh, because what they're doing is, you know, they're 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 exchanging, they're basically pre-ordering your book, but they're they're making a very risky bet on you that you're going to deliver. And part of the reason they're doing is because they want to support that independent spirit and uh, people that can sort of and vibe that independent spirit tend to do very well. So it is about doing uh, a really nice. Our campaigns are very thorough. A lot of times we get uh, we get uh, we use all thirty thousand characters that uh, Kickstarter allows us to use because we know that there's just a lot for us to say, uh, and we make sure your rewards are good and make sure your video is good. But the main thing is to make sure that people uh, are excited and vibing to you. So basically that would be, so if you could, would that include some sort of personal story as far as why you're doing it? Absolutely. The why is the most important. If you have a why, um, I mean, you need beautiful art and you need to like make the book. Like you mean, I'm assuming that the book is great, right? You've got to make the book great. Like that's the most important thing. Uh, but once you have a great book, 
then it becomes about the why becomes everything. And I have seen books uh, that I've been selling for years uh, explode in sales when I finally figured out the why behind them. So there's a book called Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter that it took me years to figure out the why behind that book and start telling its story. But once I started telling it well, sales doubled. Uh, you know, our last campaign for it, we raised uh, $16,000. Uh, it, it's just it became a much different um, situation when we when we were able to discuss why the book was important, not just that it was cool. Once people started to understand uh, all of the layers behind Ichabod, they really grew to love the character even more and become much more impassioned advocates for it. And of course, once you have it set up as a franchise, it becomes a little bit easier because at that point you've established somewhat the why, and then you're basically just making it more important each step. Right, and you're well, and you keep funneling people into the beginning. So, like, you can just if if you're gonna make something a series, then you just can keep funneling people into the beginning throughout the process, and people will keep finding it, and then your audience should grow. Uh, it, just, it gives you a, a place to direct them, though. So for Ichabod, I can just forever just keep pushing them back to the first book in the series or the first issue in the series. And then with our God's Verse, I can do the same thing with Katrina. I can give the first book away for free and know that some people are going to make it through to the end and read all four books. So all of that stuff, uh, all of that stuff is really helpful, but... It does require you to – I mean, it requires a ton of people to see your campaign. That's the – at the end of the day, a ton of people ha see my campaigns, and most of them don't back. You know, last campaign, I had something like 25,000 people on our mailing list and 500 people backed the book. The, uh, the highest one we've ever had is 1,000, and I had, I think, 45,000 people on our mailing list at that point, plus all of the uh, Facebook friends and, and Twitter friends followers and Facebook followers and all of those people. There were probably close to 100,000 people that saw that campaign to get 1% of it. So that is the other thing is um, Kickstarter is great to help expose you to a new audience, but you really are going to have to bring your own audience there too. And the more of those people that you find, the bigger your audience grows, the easier these Kickstarters are. The Kickstarters I run now are a lot easier, actually, ironically, than the ones that I ran when I was uh, when, when I was a much younger creator raising a lot less. Because now I have a lot more to tap into than I did back then. Cool. And that actually does make a certain degree of sense. I mean, when you start looking at... And I love going to movie franchises because it's a bit more familiar for me for some strange reason. At that point, you've already established you already have an audience. And because of that, you actually got a lot more doors opening because you've actually established that you are an actual success. So that would make it a lot easier in that regard. Right. I mean, just look at the first Iron Man movie compared to the last Endgame movie as far as box office goes. It was, you know, so many more people were ready for that last movie than the first movie. And it's because they spent 10 years growing the audience, growing the franchises, getting people excited, telling people why they should see it. And they just, every time a, a new movie came out, it built on the ethos and they built on, uh, it built on the, 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 the foundation that they laid before it. 
And of course, the other fun question is when you are starting to establish the Kickstarter, how do you establish the separate tiers for that? Um, I think that there's four main tiers. I think it's four. Maybe it, maybe it's five, but I'll go through them really quick. The first is a uh, well. The first is you should have a preview on your page for free that they could sign up for your mailing list to get. So like. You, the, click here and 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 get and download like a, the first seven pages of the book or something like that, so that they can see what they get. Uh, almost no campaigns offer a free preview, and I think that's a that's a shame. But then once you have the free tier uh, out, I always I really like having a one dollar tier. A lot of people don't, but my goal is to. I remember I'm thinking of five years ahead. So my goal is to take that person who spends a dollar and make them someone who spends a hundred dollars. And so if I, if they don't spend that dollar, they'll never spend that hundred dollars. So I want to capture them at the one dollar level if they're if they're not ready to make a long term commitment, and then. Uh, the second step is to have a digital tier. I'm going to assume we're talking about comics here. So uh, a digital tier where the comic is so five five dollars if it's a single issue, ten dollars if it's a trade. Um, then you want to have your uh, your 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 main tier, uh, which is uh, if you're doing a trade, probably going to be a twenty five dollar graphic novel uh, or uh, a fifteen a ten to fifteen dollar single issue book. Um, I think that you should always have a campaign at $25, something at $25, because that is the uh, most common pledge level. Uh, so you should have something really cool at $25. Then um, moving up is the, the final tier you have to worry about is the, the profit maximizer tier. So these are like the $50, $100, tiers, like being drawn into the book or getting a commission or something along those lines that will uh, that your diehard fans are going to upgrade to. So I always try to have something at $1, $10, $25, $50, and $100. And those are the tiers that people most – likely will back my campaigns at. Uh, and so our $1 campaign this time is uh, a little Cthulhu toy. So you download it and you get a little Cthulhu toy uh, that you can, a paper toy that you can uh, print out and, uh, and, and, and build uh, $10. You get uh, volume one or two of our Cthulhu anthology at $25, you get a pin and the digital version. At $50, you get the main, you get a, a, the, the second volume or first volume, of the, you get the second volume of the book plus getting written into the book as a, like a special thanks. Then at $100, you get a bundle. And that's how I sort of think about it. My main, my, my main tier, my big tier, my bigger tier, my biggest tiers. And they're, they're all designed to capture a different kind of fan you know my my diehard fans like being written into a special thanks in every book so they uh they tend to do fifty dollars every time even uh, even if they can get something for cheaper okay and how successful do you feel are the one i want to see the physical add-ons but i'm looking at merchandise like bookmarks pins that sort of thing the pins have been Absolutely incredibly effective. Uh, we try and do an exclusive pin for every or a new pin for every campaign. And those pins uh, often raise 
thousands of dollars for us additionally. Um, and then they become good sellers at shows as well. So the pins uh, are phenomenal sellers for us. We have not found anything else to be a good seller for us on Kickstarter. Prints, um, uh, 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 what, uh, coffee mugs or, or shirts or any of that stuff. Like We have not found any of that is good. The only thing that we have found that really works effectively are pins for us i know other people do a lot of variant covers and that's something we did in our last campaign for ichabod jones monster hunter we did a because that there was only really for one volume a one issue of book issue five uh we were able we, we did a couple of variant covers and sort of made a bundle so people could get multiple uh books for relatively uh uh you know and and, and then get their their average price per uh per uh sale up a little bit um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I really do not like, uh, people, uh, to spend all of their money on these, uh, extra things like coffee mugs and t-shirts and stuff until they've built their audience. Once you have an audience, then it becomes a lot more, um, a lot more likely that they would like that ancillary stuff, but most people are still going to buy the book. I mean, even J.K. Rowling, most people bought those bought, bought that book for a decade before the movies came out. And then they saw the movies for a decade before that theme park came out. So um, you most people are getting into merch too quickly when what they should be doing is focusing on getting the book and making sure they have fans of the book, because the fans of the book will then dictate what kind of extra stuff that you have and that 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 they want. Maybe they want prints, or maybe they want T-shirts, or whatever it is. They will be very vocal about it. Okay. And I guess we want to talk a little bit about the actual the book is going on the uh, sale tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so Cthulhu is hard to spell. Is our most popular single book. It was a smash when we debuted it in 2018. It raised thirty nine thousand dollars on Kickstarter. Um, we're trying to raise thirty, basically thirty one thousand dollars to for the second volume. And uh, Cthulhu is hard to spell. Is an all ages appropriate Lovecraft anthology featuring the gods and monsters of Lovecraft. This is uh, the big switch between most Lovecraft anthologies, and there are many is that this anthology focuses on the gods and monsters themselves. Yes, there's some good old-fashioned psychological horror and cosmic horror in the vein of, uh, in the vein of uh, Lovecraft's work, but we really did a lot to expand out from that into, into other kinds of, of the mythos. So, for instance, the story that I wrote is called Good Kitty. It's about a Yithian who... Uh, who uh, who gets transferred into the consciousness of a kitten instead of a human, uh, and and uh, and then comes back to uh, to the future where the yith are from and tells everyone about it. So if you don't know anything about Lovecraft, that could be fun because like a the story is funny. It's amazing character designs by Eric Lervold, and uh, there's kitties in it too. But if you know a lot about Lovecraft, then you know the Yith are a alien race from the future, and they transfer their consciousnesses into humans in the from in, in the present to study them. So 
you don't need to have a lot of information to just enjoy that story. If you don't know that story, then you if you don't know anything, you've learned something about the gif. And if you did know it, then you've learned something. Then you've been entertained about the uh, with something in the gif in a way that you haven't done before. Or at least we hope you haven't seen before. And those are the two kinds of stories that complement all of the all of the the, the 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 existential dread. So there is horror, but there's also funny stories, cute stories, silly stories. There's a frightening story towards the end uh, by Christian Gossett and Marcus Perry uh, about the dangers of social media influence, which is like the brightest, most bubbly story. But it is like it, it, it's 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 horrifically it's 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 so scary uh, because it could so happen. Uh, and, uh, so we try to balance it. Uh, it's, it's a big, me and Chris, the, 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 the other editor spend a lot of time trying to balance those stories to make sure there's plenty of horror. There's plenty of dark stuff, but there's plenty of subversion of things that, uh, you've never seen before. In the first story we had, a, we had, a a story of Orn and Numqua, who are the Ross and Rachel of the universe, uh, uh, going to marriage counseling. So there's all sorts of those kind of stories, plus the psychological horror that Lovecraft fans uh, uh, enjoy. And I've been very pleased with the reception of hardcore Lovecraft fans who've said that uh, someone I just saw this weekend said, you know, I usually love my like like my Lovecraft a little darker than this. Like I'm, I like it on the serious side, but I was I was pleasantly surprised with how much I like this anthology. And so I. Uh, I was very happy. I'm very happy with it came with with how it came out. Uh, not just Christian Gossett's and my stories, but there are 38 stories from 70 creators, including Paul Jenkins, who uh, who's written a ton of Marvel stuff, or Ring Anthony Height from Wakandaverse and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, and a, a whole bunch of uh, some of the best independent creators uh, in the game. Uh, three stories I thought stood out for me were the, the Nightmare and the Night Gaunts, just because it had a neat little twist there at the end. Yeah, that was great. I uh, uh, that's Matt uh, Matt Kund. I've I've known him for years, and one of the things I love about anthologies is being able to um, to uh, to uh, to work with people who you've been friends with for a long time and watch them grow and uh, and uh, and and just. Uh, uh, deliver really fantastic stories. So that's one that's that that's uh, that I thought was wonderful too. Um, a good mix of the horror plus the comedy I thought was how the Dark Lord Pastor conquered the world. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's another one of my favorites. So Johnny C and Karastemo wrote a book called uh, wrote a story called um, uh, Oh my God, how the Dark I forget what it's called in the first anthology, but they did a story in the first anthology about uh, oh how to summon the Dark Lord Haster. That's how. So the first one was about summoning him, and this one was about him taking over. And I just thought it was a. I can't wait to see. I'm hoping that we can get the third one so we can see uh, so we can see what the next thing is for this story. But yeah, I agree. I I I really I really enjoyed that one. I mean, it was just sort of cool because it has that certain level of this could actually happen in there. So I was sort of fun about it. Yeah, I really love it. I really love the beginning where he's like, where am I? Because he got some. It happens right after the end of the first one. So he's like, Hastur's like, where am I? And the, the, his little minion is like, Earth, my lord. 
And he's like, Earth! Ah! And of course, he goes in and takes takes things over, so. Yeah, that was a lovely one. What was the third one? There were actually a couple in there. I, but just because I'm, I've got this thing right now for uh, reality shows, I thought uh, Home Hunting for the Apocalypse. Yeah, that one was, uh, so that is uh, Abby Butler and Leanne Daniel, and uh, that's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the subversion one. So you, you actually have like a, a good smattering because uh, Nightmare of the Night Gaunt is a very traditional Lovecraftian in how it uh, – the construction of it. And uh, and uh, how, did, how Dark Lord Haster summoned the world was kind of half and half comedy and, uh, and drama. And, uh, and then uh, – Home hunting for the uh, home hunting apocalypse edition uh, is basically pure comedy, and we're talking. Uh, it's sort of like Home Hunters, but in the apocalypse. So it's this woman who is trying to show these uh, this couple homes, but they're like burnt out hovels and like maximum security prisons and things like that. And I thought it was just it's 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 such an, an interesting way to build out the world and you're like well this would happen like you know apocalypse you would have to probably have some sort of television or something on and like this might be a show that you got during the apocalypse and even if you didn't like you would have to have like a house like people would have to live there right right so so yeah i really uh you i think you picked a good smattering of uh of of sort of the different stuff you'll find in the anthology and how it can hit you at different times in different places because uh there are there the the home hunting one is sort of in the beginning of the anthology and then the the johnny sees the the haster one is sort of smack dab in the middle and then the night gods is kind of towards the end yeah it's basically overall like i said it's a nice different kind of feel like pointing out in the pre-interview I, and, you know, I tend to basically do a lot of horror just because, well, it's sort of fun. And you, Cthulhu is really a hard one to nail down when it comes to doing a movie of him. Yeah, he's, it's not it's not just uh, hard to do a movie. It's just he's a very – he's got a very high bar, bar to entry. Uh, a lot of people want to enjoy Lovecraft or have heard of Lovecraft, but his writing is dense, and he doesn't do a good job of uh, of, of – introducing you to his characters so uh, the classic example is azathoth like the most important god maybe of the entire pantheon uh gets one paragraph in all of lovecraft's writing one paragraph uh to describe who who, who azathoth is and if you don't know who azathoth is and you read any of the other stuff you you will be completely lost uh so a lot of people don't like Lovecraft because of that high barrier to entry. And so we wanted to make something where you could learn all of the characters, but in a fun way. And then also uh, 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 mix up the way that Lovecraft writes a little. Is, is Because he wrote for pulps, a lot of his stories were done in that pulp very similar way, right? It was weird guy or girl goes to weird town, finds weird cult, uh, trying to resurrect weird God, and then chaos ensues. Um, and a lot of people that came past Lovecraft uh, have sort of uh, moved 
uh, moved his writing and moved the genre forward in, in new and interesting ways. But I think that those two things really make Lovecraft dense. And if you can get uh, dense and have a high barrier to entry, and if, if, if I can do nothing else but help people uh, appreciate Lovecraft by honing sort of more uh, lower barrier to entry books that uh, fans can love but also newbies can relate to, then I feel like I'll have done my job. Uh, and that is what we're trying to do. We're always trying to balance how do we give something to fans Hardcore fans of Lovecraft, like the Apocalypse Home Hunters edition, I think is one that um, fans of Lovecraft can enjoy, especially the end, and newbies can enjoy. And then maybe Night Gaunts is one that uh, is 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 one for real hardcore fans. Like that, there for that one's for hardcore fans, um, and we're hoping that people could love love that one too. But Part of it is how we mold the whole thing together so that you could give it to a five-year-old and they could enjoy it. Or you could give it to someone who grew up reading Lovecraft and is now in their 80s and they can also enjoy it. And uh, to me, a good anthology is a mixtape. And so we want to give you know, something for the hardcore fans, something for a newbie. We want to keep something light and then something dark. We want to move you through. So there's a very intentional flow to the way that our anthologies, um, that our anthologies are, are put together. All right. And I guess, uh, go ahead and plug the book. Just have fun with it now. <laughs> so Cthulhu is hard to spell. You can go to CthulhuIsHardToSpell.com and, uh, and check it out. Why you should get it is because uh, Lovecraft has permeated every inch of our culture for the last hundred years. And uh, this, is, this book is a celebration of all of that. Uh, it's not just a celebration of Lovecraft, but the people that came after him, plus everybody from James Cameron to Steven Spielberg to In the Mouth of Madness to to uh to jacob's ladder to all of that uh all of those people moved the lovecraft mythos in new and interesting ways and this is a celebration of the entire mythos as a whole but most importantly the thing that you don't find in many lovecraft things except for call of cthulhu is an exploration of the gods and monsters themselves and that is what uh this book is. It is about the gods and monsters. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I could add something new to the Lovecraft mythos because, frankly, there's dozens, if not hundreds, of anthologies about Lovecraft plus Lovecraftian anthologies that are that Lovecraft wrote because he wrote a lot of short stories. So I didn't want to just make a book that was more Lovecraft stories. I want, but there's one thing that I have not seen and you still don't see enough, and that is the explorations of the gods and monsters themselves. And that is mostly because Lovecraft thought to look upon the gods or even think about them would drive you mad. Um, but I think we're living in a mad time right now, and so probably a little madness never hurt anybody. And so uh, the, the this book really does, it subverts, it, it gives you some real awesome old-fashioned Lovecraft uh, it does the over the two volumes. We uh, we 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 also retell many of Lovecraft's stories uh, in uh, faithfully. Also, we uh, we 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 spin some uh, on their heads, and we use the characters in new and interesting ways, which are always uh, always true 
to the characters, but maybe in ways you've hopefully in ways you've never seen before. So Cthulhu is hard to spell is live on Kickstarter. Now we have an awesome uh, enamel pin along with the book. Uh, that's my favorite reward. That's $60. It's a building blocks. It's got both elder signs on it. So you can get double the protection. It has both the tree branch that Lovecraft used and the, uh, the star that became more popular with uh, Call of Cthulhu. But, I mean, it's the best anthology we've done. I can't say it's the best book I've ever made because we've made some amazing books. But I definitely think the quality level has risen just like it did last time and the time before it. And I'm just so proud of this book. And if you love Lovecraft, uh, I, I highly recommend it because it's pretty pretty much – uh, a, a love letter to Lovecraft from people who love Lovecraft and have been influenced by him to people who love Lovecraft. And it is all ages appropriate, which means that while we do tell some stories that are advanced, um, there's no sex, blood, uh, cursing, uh, uh, or any violence you would not see on a Saturday morning cartoons. But in that, it's not a book for kids. It's a book that you can show to kids and it has everything from first reader stories all the way up to upper YA, but it is something for the whole family can enjoy. Truly the thing that I love most about the first volume, and I hope we've replicated it in the second volume is that, uh, is that we are making Lovecraft for everyone, every person to enjoy. All right, cool, and that wraps it up. Thanks for coming. This episode of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews is brought to you by Podfaves.com. You love podcasts, but it's hard finding that next bingeable show. Podfaves has taken out the guesswork by easily identifying the best podcasts out there, so you can spend less time searching and more time listening. That's P-O-D-F-A-V-S dot com. And that's our show. For those interested in supporting the show, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. It features minicasts, next episode, and unedited interviews, and I'm working on transcripts of the various shows. We also have an Alexis app offering two-minute minicasts offering writing and business tips, as well as affirmations to keep you writing. We also have curated playlists on YouTube, with all the shows broken down to different playlists based on topic. It also includes a good part of available minicasts, as well as the Alexis briefs. So please support our Patreon page, download the Alexis app, and subscribe to the YouTube channel, and please talk to us on Facebook. Thank you, and have a great day.